0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Rather than going into this and saying, this is an iterative process where every time I do something, my primary metric is growth and learning. Hmm. Um, Most people go into it and their primary metric is this must succeed. And then when it doesn't succeed, because it, it, you know, very often it doesn't, you know, by their terms of I've created something beautiful, like the dream outcome that I had is the outcome that I actually experienced. And when it doesn't hit that, then people look at the entire investment as a failure Hmm. and they get dejected because they're like, well, why would I do that again? Because I'm just going to end up banging my head against the wall again, I'm going to go do something else rather than looking at it and saying, you know what? I'm in this because something deeper inside of me is calling to be in this, and and I'm I have a sense for what I want to be capable of creating, and I'm open to the possibility that this will very likely take me years, if not decades. You know, it's a classic Ira Glass quote, right? Yeah. You you develop that sense of taste long before you develop the capability to produce on the level that of that taste.
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Jonathan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Awesome to be hanging out with you. Yeah, it is really, really cool to have you back here. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because you and I go way back. Uh, and it's funny because you're probably one of the handful of people who has made multiple appearances on our show, both when we were broadcast FM and as uh, Unmistakable Creative. And I know that you have a new book coming out uh, and definitely we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it. But before we get there, I want to ask um, a question that was actually prompted by the very beginning of the book. You know, you open the book by talking about uh, your relationship with your mother and the fact that your father left. And I'm curious about the impact that the relationship you
1: have with your mother has had on your life and your work. Um, yeah. And and um. And also like the... You know, so I, I opened it basically telling a story that, um, you know, a lot of kids have gone through, um, you know, their parents uh, end up splitting and, um, and, and, you know, they actually did it as amicably and respectfully as they could. Um, but, you know, I was where and I think a lot of kids in, in sort of like that generation and my generation, you know, you end up um, sp- uh, spending most of your time with your mom. And, uh, so we, it was an interesting dance, you know, like kind of learning how to explore that dynamic together and like just the two of us living alone in a house. And, um, and I, I, wasn't home for a lot of time after that, this was towards the latter part of high school. So, you know, I still had a bit of time in there, but, uh, you know, it was interesting. It was also really, it was an interesting moment for me because, um, everything kind of became uncertain. And for the first time, you know, you see, and you sense, vulnerability in a parent that you don't ever as a general well maybe I shouldn't generalize but I didn't really ever see um before that time maybe I just didn't want to see it I don't know so it it kind of you know it pushes you and and it it really um it makes you question question a lot of things but probably in a good way um, at least for me mm.
0: yeah the uncertainty piece. I mean, I know this is really the subject of your last book, and it's funny because it seems like the seed for that idea got planted very early in your life. Uh, yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, navigating that kind of uncertainty at such a young age. I mean, what did you learn about navigating
1: uncertainty then that applied later on in your life? Yeah. Can I always count on you to ask me questions that I don't see coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously. You should know that by now. Of course. No. Um, You know, it's interesting. If I reflect on that time, I don't know if, I think probably a bunch of what it taught me was self reliance. Um, and also what, what I'd seen, not just in that moment in time, but also growing up, you know, is that, um, I grew up and my mom was, was an artist and a craftsperson. And, um, so she lived in that space of constant creativity and, um, and, and uncertainty. And I think seeing that and seeing her keep going back to that place and seeing both sides of the creative spectrum in that, you know, you, you never knew if she, she, she was a potter. For most of my um most of my younger years. And she could spend hours and hours and hours making something on a wheel and then have a kiln load full of stuff. And then she had this massive gas-fired kiln that you could literally walk into. And you know, it would take you know like a full day to fire this thing. And you go through this entire process, and the whole thing is done very unscientifically. You have these little Cones that that are, are designed with different substances that melt at different heats over time. And you would just sort of like pull a brick out of the kiln and peer in with, you know, welder's goggles to see how many of the cones were melted to try and get a feel for how hot it was and how long it was going. And you go through this incredible, long, arduous process, and then you'd let the thing cool down for a couple of days and and peel the bricks out brick by brick. And you didn't know if you were going to have something gorgeous or you didn't know if everything inside would have exploded um, or melted down or you just have some sort of, you know, like chemical disaster until you actually did that. And so I think it was really interesting, probably a lot more informative to sort of my lens on uncertainty in the creative process, seeing my mom navigate being a craftsperson and devoting all of her energy to making something, knowing that part of her process was at the end, there was this really big thing that had to happen. And it could, it could, um, manifest in really creating something beautiful or completely tearing apart all the work you had put into it. And that, that was just a part of the process for her. You know, that was an unknown part of the process. And it was just something that you kind of like, uh, leaned into. Um, you know, it's funny, like thinking back that those are the stories that really stay with me and seeing her not get freaked out. You know, obviously she pulled this thing open after so much work and bad stuff had happened, you know, she was not a happy person. But at the same time, the next day, she went back in the studio, because that's what you do. Hmm.
0: So two, two questions. Um, what do you think prevents people from being able to go back the next day? Like, what is it that inhibits grit, uh, based on, you know, sort of the experiences that you've had and, and the stories that you've been able to tell? Because I know you've talked to
1: some really just in fascinating people in your life. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things. One is the expectation of success, the expectation that um, rather than going into this and saying this is an iterative process where every time I do something, my primary metric is growth and learning. Hmm. Um, most people go into it and their primary metric is this must succeed. And then when it doesn't succeed, because it, it you know, very often it doesn't you know, by their terms of I've created something beautiful, like the dream outcome that I had is the outcome that I actually experienced. And when it doesn't hit that, then people look at the entire investment as a failure. Mm -hmm. And they get dejected because they're like, well, why would I do that again? Because I'm just going to end up banging my head against the wall again, I'm going to go do something else rather than looking at it and saying, you know what, I'm in this because something deeper inside of me is calling to be in this. And, and I'm, I have a sense for what I want to be capable of creating and I'm open to the possibility that this will very likely take me years, if not decades, you know, it's a classic Ira Glass quote, right? Yeah. You, you develop that sense of taste long before you develop the capability to produce on the level that of that taste, you know, and most people don't want to wait. They just, they want to get there now and I get it because that's me too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, my sense is that the people who develop you know, that sense of grit that allows them to endure through so many trials to get to that place where capability equals taste and sensibility and where, where, where the thing that you see in your mind that you want to create is actually the thing that you become capable of creating, it's approaching the process as, uh, with an understanding that um, this is going to take time. And each time I do something, all I'm really doing is running an experiment And the primary thing that I want to get out of it is I want to learn. And if I can create beauty along the way, well, that's awesome. It's a really nice bonus. My ultimate goal is to create beauty. Um, But I know along the way, I'm going to have to create a ton of ugly stuff to get there. And that's okay. So I think if you go into it with that lens, you're able to endure the process um, with so much more grace. Yeah. I, you know, having
0: just, it's kind of fitting to talk about this since we were just talking about book sales. Yeah. Um, you know, And same, same thing. It's a lesson. It's so weird because to me, it's one of those things I was like, wow, I wrote about this very
1: thing in my book. And yet I have to remind myself of this on a daily basis. Yeah, dude, we all do. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm on my, my third book now and, and creating stuff since I was a kid. You know, I've been painting since I was a kid, creating businesses since I was a kid. And the reason I wrote my last book before this was because even through decades of doing all this work, I was still bleeding every time I did it. You know, and I just want to figure out like, is there some way to be just at least baseline? Okay. And, you know, to sort of like create a different lens on the process, that'll just be more forgiving. Because um, I think most of us are not wired to look at any sort of, you know, large scale, long term creative endeavor that way. And my sense is that the way technology is going, it's training us to have the expectation of instant across all domains. And there are just certain things that you can't rush. There's, you know things that require um, a rewiring of your neural circuitry. That there is nothing that you can do. There's no technology in existence. There is no deliberate practice that will make that happen faster. Mm-hmm. It just it, your brain takes time to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about the relationship with your father and,
0: uh, more importantly, I mean, having had a father leave when you were young, how has that changed your approach to parenting or or what impact has that had on your approach as a parent?
1: Yeah. You know, so it's interesting. So, so my parents split, but my dad didn't leave my life. You know, he was still very involved and still is to this day. So I didn't experience it so much as my dad leaving. Mm -hmm. I experienced it as my parents split. Um, and my my folks were were and still are very different. My mom has always been much more on sort of the crass person side, and my dad uh, my dad until very recently w- my dad was a guy who had one job for his entire adult life, um, and he literally just retired a couple of years ago. And he still he retired largely just because he didn't want to have to deal with academia. But he's still, um, he's a researcher. He researches um, um, human cognition, the human learning process. And he's done that. He did it in an academic environment as a professor and running a lab for, I want to say, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's hes gotten to a point where he retired and he... Um, but he's still doing all of his work and doing all of his research, just in sort of you know like collaborations with other people that he knows in academia that have labs, so he doesn't have to sort of deal with the the the, the world of academia and sort of the bureaucracy and and stuff like that. Um, so he didn't you know he didn't leave my life. Um, he he was still uh, in my life and continues to be. And you know it's been interesting to see him be that example of somebody who found something that he was absolutely consumed by at a very young age and stayed with it and developed a level of mastery and, you know, grew a lab that um, generated a stunning amount of research and publication. Um, And he spent a lot of time traveling around the world um, uh, speaking about the work in the lab and publishing. Um, So, you know, and, and it's really, it's contrary to the way that so many people think about building a career these days, mm-hmm. where you think about jumping from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing yeah. and, and constantly balancing multiple different pursuits. So it's really interesting to see an example of somebody who literally put all of his marbles in one basket for his entire life and developed a level of deep mastery um, around it. So it's, I think it's good to, to see examples of that because there are very few. Um, these days.
0: It's interesting when you describe both your parents to me, your work makes so much more sense to me now. because mm, it Yeah, seems I'm definitely
1: like, a blend of both.
0: <laughs> yeah, you really are. I mean, because and part of what I've always appreciated about your work is that there's this very inspirational element to it. And yet, it's always backed up by a lot of practicality as well. Um, and that's why I think what you, you do is so interesting. And it, I, I find it so valuable. And like I said, I mean, hearing, you know, what it Hearing you describe both your parents, it makes complete sense. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting is when you're talking about your dad. You talked about him becoming consumed by this one thing, and you know, I I look at growing up, I look at school, I look at education, and I you know, I'm not a parent, so I, I but I, I am always curious when I talk to parents. What is it that you know? How do you identify those moments when you are completely consumed by something that could actually lead to something great?
1: Yeah, such a good question. Um, I look, I, you know, I'm 50 years old, and I'm still looking for those moments in myself. And, and as a father to now a teenager, you know, like a daughter who's in high school, I'm sort of on the lookout for those moments with her because I know that one of the most incredible gifts that you can find for yourself is to find those things that absolutely light you up. And, you know, and, and lean into them and really invest increasing amounts of energy in those things. And I don't think there's any formula. I don't believe that there's, you know, what, here's what I've seen. There are some people that hit the planet and they turn five years old and something, they just know, they know there's a knowing that this is what they want to do. I mean, I had a chance to sit down with Milton Glazer, you know, he's the most iconic living designer in the world right now. And at six years old, he knew what he wanted to do with his life. He didn't necessarily know that would lead to being a designer and a teacher, but he knew that he wanted to draw and make art and make beauty, and he followed that path and has never wavered for it, from it for seventy years now. Um, is still, astonishingly prolific in what he does, you know. But a lot of people look at that and they say, "Well, that's what I want to do," and not realizing that that is very much the outlier. And for most of us, you know, I think the process is much more about. Um, staying open. and It's funny because this reflects back on what we were just talking about, about the creative process. Mm -hmm. It's about looking, it's about first exalting, understanding that finding the things that genuinely light you up, that spark you are critically important. They really help in your quest to to live well and contribute meaningfully to the world and to your life. Um, And saying, okay, this may take me years, it may take me decades, but part of my job is to just continue to try things, to run those series of deliberate experiments. Again, not saying this must succeed, but saying, huh, what can I learn about myself by doing this and, um, and doing it until you get answers? Uh, you know, I think one of the biggest tragedies that tends to happen now is that so many people graduate from, from school, from secondary education with such a mountain of debt that it almost forces you to lock yourself into um, a career path that services your debt rather than allows you to run those experiments. And very often it takes decades before you can extract yourself. And at that point, people start to run those experiments or they just kind of become so dejected and feel like, well, my path is what it is that they serve out the rest of their time doing what they they've started doing and built a career and a life around doing. And, um, I think that can be, some people can be okay with that. But I think for a lot of people, it can also be relatively tragic.
0: It's it's really interesting you say that because, I mean, I have my student loan debt and I think my sort of take on it was that I vowed not to live my life in service of, of paying off that debt uh, because I, I knew it would lead to exactly what you're talking about. And I thought, you know, if I get to the end of my life and all I've accomplished is paying off debt, like if that's what somebody had to write on my tombstone, he paid off his student loan debt. I thought, you know what? There's no way I'm going to go out like that. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, um, I think, I think you're the exception. Well, you know, (laughs) you know that already. So, so,
0: you know, I have to ask um, as a parent who has been exposed to all of these ideas and all of these people who've made these very unique sort of career paths for themselves, how do you think about education for your own kids?
1: Ah, yeah. So, so my daughter's in, in, um, in private school and it's more of a, a, progressive education approach. Um, but there's still a certain amount of mainstream that has to happen, especially when you're in high school. And, you know, at the end of the day, everybody sort of is moving towards the, the same tests and the same potential, you know, like quest to go to college. Um, but I've actually sat down and I've told her, um, I've said, Hey, listen, if you feel like college is the right thing for you um you know, like to have a conversation about it and and I'll support you in that decision um but i don't have any expectation that like that is the absolute mandatory next step for you because for a lot of people it's not the most sensible thing you know the when i went to school um it was pretty dirt cheap you know, there's a really high expectation that if you wanted a job after that, paying a decent amount of money, you would get it and you would repay your, your loans, um, you know, relatively quickly, pretty much everybody, you know, got through that process and moved on. And the, uh, the financial equation is, is profoundly different these days. And the need to actually have a degree to do so many different things is also dramatically lessened. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's kind of like an ongoing conversation. You know, I'm, I think a gap year spent well is, can be really, really powerful thing. Um, So, you know, I guess our, my approach and our approach are, you know, with my wife is, um, you know, we're kind of holding different doors open and saying, listen, we don't have any expectation that, you know, there's one next step and that's what you have to do. Um, You know, we're, we're open and we've kind of invited her to be open to exploring different options and seeing what feels right. And I've even, at at one point, I actually, uh, I was like, look, if you want to start a business, um, you know, rather than go to school or put off school for a bit um, and try and build something, um, I'll help you do it. So it's been my approach.
0: Interesting. Uh, Just out of curiosity, does
1: she read your books or listen to good life project? (laughs) She does not. Uh, <laughs> although, interestingly, some of her friends do. <laughs> wow! If there's something really interesting, she will. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, not on a
0: regular basis. It's <laughs> yeah, interesting because my, my parents don't listen to the show, or, or you know, they, I think the the most recent book is the only one that they've actually read, <laughs> um, which is yeah. I, I was just really curious. Well, let's do this. Let's uh, let's shift gears. I want to start getting um, into the ideas in the book, but um, I want to start by asking you. I mean, what in the world decided that made you decide that this is the question that you want to answer? How to live a good life? Because you know that the answer to that question could be the quest of a lifetime.
1: Yeah, and it is, and it has been. Um, So it was less me deciding this is the question that I want to answer. It was more of me deciding that. I'd reached a point where I thought I had something to say that might matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and because this is a question that, that I've been living for my entire adult life, you know, from pretty much as far back as I can remember. I've always been deeply fascinated by both the human condition and and the exploration of human potential. And that's manifested in a lot of different ways. It's manifested in art. It's manifested in businesses. But there's a really interesting through line, which is that everything has always been connected by this bigger question of how can we create things that allow people to live better, to live more meaningful, engaged, connected lives in the world. Um, And but it takes, you know, Steve Jobs' classic quote, right? You know, you need you need enough dots to be able to look back and start to see how they connect and. I've kind of, I think, reached a point in my life now where, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, God willing, I'll have a lot more dots to, to, to create and gather and reflect on. But there are enough now so I can start to see patterns in my own life, patterns in the lives of the so many people I've been fortunate to spend time with. And um, I feel like there, there were, there was a way that I could potentially share what I've been seeing that might resonate with people. Um, and, and help them engage with the world a bit differently and feel better and, and feel like they're getting more of what they came, um, to get. And, uh, and it was interesting. I, I think I've told you this backstory, I can't remember, but, um, this is actually not the book that was sold to my publisher. The book that was sold was a deep dive into belonging and, um, over time um, a bunch of stuff happened and we shifted gears and uh, and this was the book that ended up coming out of a, a very long and arduous process hmm. so
0: how is your perspective uh, on what it means to live a good life changed both through the multiple iterations of the careers that you've had as well as with age
1: um, well beyond getting more jaded, not just kidding. <laughs> uh, I was like, I think that's just a factor of, of living in New York City. Uh, there's, you know, I make decisions differently. Uh, different things matter to me. My, my sense of what's possible um, has shifted. So for example, at an earlier point in my life, I'm still pretty risk tolerant for somebody um, who's sort of at the point in my life where I am. Um, when I look at a lot of my friends, they're, yeah, you know, they're probably a lot less quick to try new things. Um, that said, I'm I'm almost definitely nowhere near as risk tolerant or even risk inviting as I was in my 20s and even early 30s because frankly, I have more to lose now, yeah. you know? Um, and I think we all get that way where I still want to grow and I still want to go into that place of uncertainty because that's where possibility lies. But at the same time, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I like my life right now, and I've got a beautiful family and, re- and deep relationships with them, and the ability to be present and to create and contribute in ways that I really like. And before I'm willing to just blow it up or, you know, the classic quote, go to zero, I'm going to think long and hard um, about doing that, about what I say yes and no to on a level that I I probably wouldn't have um, weighed in anywhere near the sort of like the depth. Um, a decade or two earlier in my life um, and also at the same time you know I have a family and as much as I know security <laughs> is is largely an illusion uh, you know to the extent that I can feel that sense and also create that sense for them mm-hmm. um, I feel like as as a parent that's part of what I'm here to do part of you know part of it is also you know, like teach my kid that um, you know it's good to step into the abyss um, at the same time, I want her to feel okay in the world, um, for, for this, for this moment. I know there will be times, you know, down the road where, um, where I won't be able to play that role as much. So as long as I'm here and able to do that, um, I want to, um, the other side is that, uh, like you said, I'm, I'm this really kind of total amalgam of both parents. Like my dad sort of quantitative space, like fact validated and my mom's, you know, complete sort of craft spiritual, um ultra creative side. Um and what I've seen is that I started out probably much more heavily towards the, you know, if you want me to believe it, you need to prove it to me side. And I still look for scientific validation for anything. If there's science behind something, I'll default to that. Um but I've become much more open over the years to the possibility that if a phenomenon happens, and there's no science to it. Um, there's no way that I can validate it through rules of science or um, that it's still legitimate. And maybe there's just something that's unexplainable. Maybe there's a spiritual component to it. Maybe there's something that it is beyond, you know, rational description, but that doesn't invalidate the fact that this thing happens and this thing exists. And rather than sort of like having to find the scientific validation or else refute, The fact that it's that it's possible um i've gotten much more comfortable with the idea that yeah there's just stuff that happens that i've seen happen so many times that i have no way to provide a rational um basis for but it is
3: here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about risk and how you, know, you get to the point where you have more and more to lose because I, I even feel that way now, even though I don't have you know, family or kids. But as we've grown you know, this business into what it is and a team around us and editors and agents and all these people, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people who count on me to make sure that I don't go off the deep end.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's the same thing here too. When you're building a business, um, you know, and you've got, you got people, <laughs> it's, you, you just, you make decisions or at least I make decisions differently. And maybe that makes me not a classic entrepreneur, but um, you know, I, I think that's just the way that, uh, that I, that I've changed and evolved. Um, and I, and I'm pretty okay with that actually. Hmm.
0: Well, let's do this. Um, I want to start getting into the sort of the three core ideas in the book that really uh, you think, you know, we talked a little bit about it last time you were here, but I want to do a sort of another deep dive into this because some of this is so fascinating. So um, could you give us sort of an overview of the three buckets, what they consist of and how they are all interrelated to each other?
1: Yeah, sure. So the idea is really simple. Um, and, And the underlying idea was to create a model um, for crafting a, a good life that you would hear once remember for life and that could guide your behavior. Uh, so over time, this developed into this thing I call the three buckets. So it's really simple that your life is made up of three buckets and I call them vitality, connection and contribution. Your job in the quest to live a good life is to fill those three buckets and to keep them as full as possible for as long as possible. So, so, on a really sort of macro level, you know, to fill your vitality bucket, we're talking about optimizing your state of mind your state of body. Um, on a macro level for your connection bucket, we're talking about building deep and meaningful relationships and on multiple levels, on the most intimate level, mm-hmm. um, all the way through a communal level, and on a, on a broad, indefinable level with God or source, if that's something that matters to you. And then on the contribution bucket, that's really about... Bringing your gifts to the world in a way that is profoundly aligned with the essence of who you are, and that creates the experience of deep meaning and um, and and alignment and a sense of being fully utilized, um, you know, by the work that you're doing in the world. And that doesn't necessarily equate to your job. By the way, your that work may be something that lies outside of the thing that you get paid to do. Um, so that's your. But the basic model is it's really that simple This if you spend a little bit of time every day doing something to top off those buckets, then, and you turn it into a practice, you make it less about being a goal, but just knowing this is my practice and this is my practice for life. This never stops. Mm-hmm. And my daily practice is to sense what needs filling and do a little something that day to fill it. Um, then over time in without massive disruption or, or change um, or radical uprooting over time, there are all these small shifts that start to happen and you start to realize, wow, um, things are better. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling better. I'm feeling more, you know, like there's more of a purpose. There are deeper relationships. My, my health and my vitality and state of mind are just slowly getting better. You know, it's like for you, you know, it's so interesting because if you look at you and sort of what you've been through over the last few years, really having to pull yourself out of a really dark place, you know, there's this one thing that you turned to that became a powerful bucket filler that was surfing, mm-hmm. you know? And that, you know, it was really, it was this thing that you do every day, partly because you love doing it. But also if you deconstruct it, well, what's that actually doing? You know, it's your, your it's amazing exercise. So on, you know, on multiple levels, it's really focusing on improving your health through moving your body, through mobilization and movement. It's also deeply meditative and attention training. So it really, it, it's a powerful thing for your mindset. Also just being out in the water, in the waves, you know, is something that can drop you into a state where it's sort of like nothing else matters when you're in that place. It's like you're completely and utterly present. And at the same time, it's communal, you know, it's relational. So it's doing something to also fill that connection bucket because as a general, I mean, I know plenty of people surf alone, but you know, as a general, and this is from a you know, conversation that we shared. You know, you have friends that you go surfing with, and even mm-hmm. if you don't go with them, you, you know you've got all the regulars that are there. And it's this thing where you're participating. You have a sense of belonging in a community of people who are committed to this beautiful thing, um, and that you know amazingly turns around and unlocks your ability to then lean into the work part. You know, all this stuff that gets sort of Crank down and you can't figure out how to really access and tap that potential on your creative and your work side, your contribution side, you know, filling those other two buckets is a thing that eventually unlocks that. So it's kind of fun to look at your process over the last few years and see how you, it, you know, you can take almost anybody and really quickly understand how these things work by just this really simple model of the buckets.
0: Yeah. Um, how do you know uh, when the, the right bucket isn't full? Like what, what kind of signals do you see in your life or how do you develop the awareness that a bucket is either getting to a point of being too low or that it needs to be filled?
1: Yeah. So there are kind of two answers. There's the quick intuitive hit, you know, it's the, it's the thinking slow and the thinking fast systems. I think, I think we all know (laughs) deep down, Mm -hmm. like you wake up in the morning you're like, my relationships suck. I haven't talked to my best friend in (laughs) like three weeks, you know, like my parents have been estranged, whatever it may be or you wake up and you're like, you know what? I'm achy. I'm tired. i never feel like I have energy. We, 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 we can get pretty delusional because we don't actually want to own it, Mm -hmm. but we all pretty much know, you know, so there's a quick intuitive hit that you can do. And we actually, it's funny. We, um, I don't think I even told you this, that, um, we, we created our own companion practice journal for this book that's coming out at at pretty much the same time. Um, And uh, so part of the daily morning practice is to do what I call a really quick bucket check, literally take 10 seconds and draw a line that represents the level of each bucket just completely intuitively. Mm. Um, And we pretty much know, but then you can also go deeper and you can ask specific questions and, and they're generally preceded by how satisfied am I with, and then you ask that about the various types of elements that might fill each bucket and in relatively short order, um, you can figure out um, what's in need of a little bit of love. Yeah.
0: It's interesting because I, I I you know, I very rarely once in a blue moon will take a laptop to the bedroom because I'm too tired to sit in front of a TV and I just want to watch a movie. And I'm like, every time I do that, I wake up the next morning and I'm
1: thinking, why did I do that? I didn't sleep anywhere <laughs> as near as well as I know I would have if I hadn't done that. I know, me too. I'm like, if I know that if I'm on a screen after a certain time of night, I'm almost guaranteed to wake up in the middle of the night with a headache.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I noticed and I, it it's funny because I think that when you're in a in a deeply creative phase uh, or working on a big creative project, this is something I was thinking about this morning as I was I was kind of journaling and I thought, you know, when I'm preparing to write a book, I'm like an athlete training for a sporting event or a boxer training for a fight, and I thought, okay, reduce it to one glass of wine instead of two because I saw between two glasses of wine and a laptop in bed, I didn't wake up in the best state of mind. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny because you become hyper aware of those things, I think, when you're deeply immersed
1: in some sort of creative project. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, But I think at the same time, though, the the exact opposite can tend to happen, which is that you completely lose track of everything else that matters. Yeah, that's
0: true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, you looked at, you talked about the daily practice through the lens of my life. I'm curious what it looks like through the lens of
1: yours. Yeah. So what, what my daily practice is? Yeah. So... A couple of things, and and for me, I'm because I'm like the experimenter, and I think part of my responsibility is to constantly test stuff um, and share what I learned. You know, I'm I'm changing things up on a regular basis, but there are a few things that are bedrock for me, and one of them has been a really long standing practice, and I know you have a practice too, which is my mindfulness practice, mm-hmm. and that's something that it's the first thing I do. I wake up in the morning, and um, I've actually my my morning practice starts the evening before um, with setting up my coffee machine. So that all I have to do is, is hit my burr grinder first thing in the morning, put the grinds in, hit go. And then the coffee starts brewing. And then I go and I sit and I meditate for about 25 to 30 minutes every morning. Hmm. Um, and, and I actually start out with um, a few minutes of breathing exercises or sort of yoga breathing exercises before I do that. And then I drop into my meditation. Um, and then from there, I experiment with different things. I'll, I'll sometimes do a, a, that quick bucket check too and just say, okay, what what needs a bit of love today? Like, where's, where do I need to focus my action? Um, I'll try and get a beat on, uh, you know, what is the most important thing I can do today uh, and commit to that and everything else becomes gravy. Uh, and then, uh, you know, increasingly, uh, you know, it's some, one thing that I'll try and do is just get a really, really quick win under my belt. And that may literally be sending a note or a text or an email to somebody saying, uh, hey, I just want to let you know um, that thing that, that you did or you said to me last week or three weeks ago, I've really been thinking about it and it made a difference to me. So I, I want to thank you for it um, and thank you for, for you know, being in my life. You know, Just something literally that takes 30 seconds, but it's, it's this quick little bucket win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I move into my day. And then for me, the earlier parts of my day, I try and make all about um, creation. Mm-hmm. Because I find that that's where my brain is best optimized to do the work, either really early or really late. But um, really late doesn't work all the way well for my lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and, then, uh, and then in the later parts of the day or the afternoons, I generally leave for conversation and for other work and for sort of interaction, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's, then there's, there's movement too, which, is, uh, which I kind of try and sneak in in the margins. And I keep trying different ways to exercise and move my body as well.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing I realized, I don't think I've ever asked you, and maybe I did and don't remember, uh, is throughout all this, have there been any sort of rock bottom, like very sort
1: of dark night of the soul moments in your life? Um, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, nobody hits uh, their middle years without something. Yeah. Um, For me... And yeah, I think we've talked about this, but probably not in the context of sort of like being a rock bottom moment, but um, I was in 2010, I ended up uh, diagnosed with tinnitus or tinnitus, depending on how, how your healthcare professional pronounces it, um, which is, which started uh, like, I know the exact date and the exact time because it was that profound in my life. And, uh, and for those who don't know what that is, I mean, there's guaranteed something like 10 to 15% of your listeners have it on some level. Um, but for those who don't know, it's essentially the way it manifested with me. What tennis is, it's a catch-all phrase, which means that you hear stuff that nobody else hears. And the reason is because it's actually being generated sometimes originally by your ears, but then eventually by the auditory centers in your brain. And that can be any variety of sensations or sound, but for most people it manifests in this really high-pitched, loud, um, sound that reverberates through your head twenty four seven. Most people who get it, it ends up going away. It sometimes is a factor of hearing loss. Sometimes, you know, like ear problems or flying and stuff like that. For me, it never went away, and I also had it really bad um, and continued. to, you know, it's never it's never changed to this day. So, the first year and a half for me. Um, was brutal it was absolutely horrible and being surrounded by ambient noise in new york city made the days bearable Mm -hmm. but when that noise drops away at night and it's just you lying in the darkness and you're surrounded by noise but it's coming from your brain um it was pretty devastating and it destroys your ability to sleep too and if you go online um I don't recommend doing that, by the way, because you'll read a lot of stories of doom and gloom and devastation and people contemplating all sorts of really horrible things. And the medical profession basically says, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, From what I understand, it's actually the number one uh, disability cost in the military because one of the potential causes is hearing loss. Um, from just loud noises and explosions. So a lot of soldiers come back with it and it becomes massively disabling Um, because we don't know if I got it as a side effect of having taken um, a a medication to help me sleep while I was doing a lot of traveling. Um, I won't take anything to help me sleep. So that wasn't an option for me. So it took about a year and a half of coming to a really, dark, um, challenging place while I was trying to keep a happy face on the outside and simultaneously trying to meet a deadline for my last book. Um, and, uh, I, I literally like, I, um, I was a couple of weeks. I remember this for the last book, Uncertainty. I was, and I'm literally writing a book about uncertainty when I'm going through this whole process. And, uh, and I, there was a time where I was coming up on the deadline for the manuscript and I hadn't told my agent or my editor or anything that was going on. And um, and I was like, all right, I don't think I'm going to hit my deadline because I'm I'm having so much trouble having the ability to focus to even write. And so eventually, I was like, all right, I have to tell I have to tell them what's going on. So I sent my I sent my um, editor and my agent an email, which kind of brought them up to speed. And my I think my it was my editor who then like replied immediately. She's like, so you're telling me you just need another month. <laughs> <laughs> and she was and she was kidding she's like she's like yeah, you know, like, of course she's like you know like let's get on the phone right now so i can understand what's really going on with you um but of course um but i literally i couldn't function um and i was struggling very mightily and not showing it to anyone in the world except for her, and my wife and my you know, my family i didn't even talk to most of my friends about it because simply talking about it was so upsetting to me because mm-hmm. of the possibility the thought that this was me for life that if I talked about it, it would become real, and I didn't want it to become real. I still had hope that maybe one day it would go away. But all I could think about all day long was stop hearing the sound. Wow! And um, so eventually, I tried almost every intervention that you could, every alternative medicine thing, and I came to a point where I was researching for my book a lot of mindfulness and how people um, how the practice can really help with uncertainty and with letting go with letting go of the stories that you keep telling yourself. It's the practice of dropping over and over and over. And I also learned that the practice has been really highly effective at helping people who experience chronic pain. It doesn't change the pain. It doesn't change the stimulus. But what it does is, is it trains your brain to keep dropping the signal and telling a different story. Because what you realize about both pain and tinnitus is it's actually not the, at least with tinnitus, it's not the sound that causes so much problem. It's your brain saying that, this is horrendous, it's horrible, there's this high alert state and your life is going to be a disaster and it creates an anxiety cycle um, that's that's absolutely debilitating. So if you can train your brain to say, actually, the sound does nothing bad to my life. I can still, I'm still fine. I can still function. I can operate. Um, it does, there's nothing wrong with me other than this. And let yourself start to just keep dropping it and coming back to other things. Um, you realize that's sort of like the, the first step. So I found a mindfulness-based cognitive therapist who was a former rock drummer who also had tinnitus and had, uh, had used the practice with himself to help get much more okay with it. And uh, it turns out he lived three blocks away from me on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I went and saw him and I was like, could this work? And he said, maybe, maybe not, but you know, we can try it. So he told me what the practice was um, and I sat and I did it and it took months and it was brutal because all this thing, of so a sudden, the thing I'd spent years at that point trying desperately not to experience the initial instruction was at this point, you know, the instruction for mind mindfulness is basically is allow your mind to just kind of keep coming back to your breath really gently. And as other thoughts and stuff come into your mind, that's fine, but just sort of let them go. You can literally label them thinking and let them go with your breath and come back to it. And, but if something keeps presenting itself over and over and over, at least for the moment, make that the focus of your meditation or of your attention. So the thing for me was the sound in my head. And that meant that in the early days, at least the thing I had to make the focus of all of my attention was this thing that I was desperate not to hear. And that was brutal. Um, And that's why in fact I developed a breathing practice, which is a special type of yoga breathing that allows you to sort of um, to, to lower the sort of nervous system response, the fight flight um, or freeze response to a point where I was even capable of sitting and uh, and I continue to do that to this day. And what I found was that there was a moment over a period of months where all of a sudden I realized one day that my mind had drifted from the sound, and that was the moment where I knew I was going to be okay because I realized that I actually couldn't hold my focus on it anymore. Um, and that was that was the window. That was like the you know the light just kind of cracking through the window, and um, and that very practice. Uh, is something that I came to very much on my knees, hmm. and and that practice has also brought me from a really dark place, first to baseline, and then become something which has opened up such possibility and such connection and such presence in everything else that I do. That it's you know it's taken a while to to see it as this, but this this thing you know I sort of view that I viewed first as my tormentor has really become my teacher. Hmm. Wow, sorry that was a really long one. No, answer. no,
0: no, that was fantastic. There was so, so much gold in there. Um, so I, I actually want to finish with two questions. One is one that I'm going to steal from you because I want to hear your response to this. Having been the person who's asked it to so many people, but what, how would you summarize the idea of what it means to live a good life? Having written a book about it and having asked hundreds
1: of people that question that so i'll give you a couple of different answers one is that one of the things that i've learned is it's not universal for each person um it's very individual but there are some really big themes there you know and the the two ways that i look at this are it's when your your connection your contribution and your vitality bucket runneth over um but on a more personal level um for me um i I look to be engaged in activities and relationships that fill me up, surrounded by people I cannot get enough of in something and and in service of something bigger than me. And when I find that that's the metric that I use to make a lot of my decisions, um, those buckets all fill and that life becomes pretty good. Mm. All
0: right. So I have one last question, which I know you've probably heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Um. Yeah, I think it's the ability to close the gap between who you are on the deepest level of self and who you bring to the world. Um, Some people might call that authenticity. I I don't understand what that word really means these days. It's become so watered down. So to me, I I think of it more visually. It's, you know... It's, it's having a really deep understanding of who you are and what matters to you and what's important and how you need to express yourself in a world to feel whole and then living as that person with every fiber of your being in every interaction that you have with the world around you.
0: Hmm. Well, this has been just amazing and inspiring as I expect it would be.
1: Uh, Where, where can people learn more about you and uh, learn more about the book? Uh thanks. Well, um, first, thank you so much for having me on. It's always oh, so much fun jamming with you. And uh, they, can, they can learn more about me at uh, goodlifeproject.com. And the book is pretty much available all over or uh, the, the page for it on the website is just goodlifeproject.com slash book. Awesome. <laughs> and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch,